Every day, people are faced with difficult choices that they have to make, whether in the workplace or not. Today's fun question is, would you rather take a 6 a.m. flight or a red-eye flight? Welcome to Impossible Trade-Offs. Welcome to Impossible Trade-Offs, everyone. I'm Katie Harbeth, your host. Today, my guest host is Diane Chang, who has a really interesting background in both news and tech. And so, Diane, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Katie. So before we jump into my favorite topic du jour about whether or not news and politics belongs in online platforms, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, So I've worked in tech for a decade now, um, most recently as the product manager in Meta's Central Integrity Division, where I started in uh, 2021 as the election integrity product manager who led the risk assessment for major elections around the world and coordinated the product strategy and efforts of product teams across Central Integrity and the different uh, apps like Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp's uh, Messenger's uh, integrity teams. Um, I worked on a number of other things related to both elections and crisis, building um, risk forecasting platforms and experimenting with new um, integrity products, both user-facing and ranking model type products. Um, And prior to that, I mainly worked on products at startups and smaller companies related to media and content, everything from content recommendations at a startup called Flipboard, um, topic classifiers, generating kind of roundups of stories on the same topic for users to uh, streaming apps for streaming services. And I came to tech kind of in an indirect way, like a lot of product managers. I actually had a first career as a news producer um, at NBC News. I worked on a number of different shows, Nightly News, Stateline, Today Show. I went to the Beijing Olympics with them in 2008. I worked on a fantastic documentary with the legendary Tom Brokaw. Um, and I was a producer for Bill Moyers on his show on PBS. And what really led me to leave was because I saw that at the time, even how news was distributed online was still a secondary concern for a lot of these traditional media companies. But that's what I was really fascinated by since my peers were not, you know, sitting down together at prime time to watch the evening news together. So I actually went and got my master's in public policy where I studied the role of the internet on government, on politics and media. Um, And at the time, the Arab Spring was happening and people were very optimistic about the role that Twitter played in helping to organize. But, you know, being a native of Taiwan, I was also watching China and seeing how the Chinese Communist Party was doing something very different and expanding their early information operations across social media and online forums to push sort of the the government narrative um, and also to surveil people. And I think that really foreshadowed what was to come with much more sophisticated info ops from different countries and not just the Chinese government. Um, And so that's really an area that I'm still very passionate about, as well as uh, making sure that people can access high quality information really easily in in consumable ways uh, on the Internet. So we're going to get into that. But really quickly, we have to have you answer our fun, hard trade off question, because it sounds like you've done a bit of travel. And so you've probably experienced both of these. But would you pick a 6 a.m. flight or a red eye? 6 a.m. every single time. I'm just completely non-functional after a red eye. And it's kind of a waste of a day after that. So any given time, I'd rather try to go to sleep early, get up early, and then make good use of my time as soon as I land. Yeah, I think I'm the same way. Red eyes. Unless it's like an overseas flight where it's a good, you can get, and you've got like the good life flat seats and like stuff like that, then like it's it's better. But like that San Francisco to East Coast red eye flight, I, I'm just a zombie after that. Like I can't function. 
attention. I can't do five hours. And I'm one of those people that has a ridiculous neck pillow that makes me look like a car accident victim. It's like a brace. Gotta use the, the pillow to help you not get that like neck soreness the next day. I love it. Well, I was really excited to talk to you, given your news background and your tech background, about this debate around whether or not the role of of how online platforms should they be courting news? Should they not be? Should they be amplifying and not amplifying it? And I'm kind of curious your perspective on this because you've been in both industries. And so you probably kind of really understand where where they're all coming from. And so let's start with sort of your overall thoughts on this. And then I'd love to dig into your product manager brain about how product managers might logically be thinking about this when thinking about the, you know, the product. Yeah, absolutely. I think in short, I obviously have tremendous sympathy for media businesses and news businesses and how hard it is to do the hard work of providing the information that people really need on a day-to-day, even if they don't necessarily realize at the moment that they're reading the news or listening to the news, that it's something that's useful to them. Um, and how hard it is to sustain that work in the long term to, to kind of keep the lights on as well as continue to invest in that work over time. So I do think that given, you know, obviously everyone is on the internet today, it's incredibly important for people to be able to get the news on the platforms that they use day-to-day. Um, but in short, that doesn't guarantee that these platforms are obligated to juice distribution. And so that's kind of the caveat. Kind of walk through what what's the role of a product manager, first and foremost? Let's start with that at a tech company. Like, what is your job when you are assigned? I think you're assigned like a specific product usually. Could it be a feature? Like maybe for people who aren't familiar, walk through what that role actually entails. Yeah, absolutely. So there are different kinds of product managers. Some are assigned a, an existing product, for instance, and they might be looking at how to continue to grow the customers or users of that product. Um, others are dropped into sort of a problem space, and their job is sort of to identify what are some of the core problems to be solved? What are some of the customer or users' ne- uh, needs in the space that present an opportunity to build a new product or to adjust an existing product in order to meet those needs? Um, I would say I tend to be drawn to situations more like the latter, where I love coming in and talking to people and users, understanding their pain points and problems, figuring out where is there an opportunity to provide something to them that they would really um, find very useful and, and come to love. So then walk us through then from a product manager standpoint, when thinking about, again, the news industry, what you're kind of amplifying in that algorithm, you're trying to weigh like what users want, but what, you know, the social good of like, what should you be giving them? How are you kind of thinking through that? Yeah. So if I were to wear my product manager hat, I would think of kind of the economics of this. And I'll put aside the sort of like philosophical part that I'm happy to talk about as well. But from the sort of like a business person point of view, I think of both the supply and demand. Um, The demand side would be thinking about the users of social media platforms who are also in this case consumers of the news. What do they typically want and what do they need? Um, And of course, this history of news consumption behavior has changed where in the past pre-internet being the dominant entry point to understanding what's in the world, um, news consumers would go to the television or the radio or a newspaper as their sort of dedicated entry point into understanding what's going on in the sort of news world and news being categorized more along the lines of um, politics, government, but also, you know, there was lifestyle content as well. And to a certain extent, these platforms are also aggregators, right? You're like, when you turn on the TV, you also obviously have entertainment content, but they're dedicated channels for the news. And same thing, the newspaper 
aggregates a number of different topics that might be interesting to you, whether it's, you know, the weather and also like maybe local local um, cultural programs and things like that. Um, but you could find the hard news there as well. And because the people that created this news also controlled the distribution channels, it was they sort of had like mini monopolies to be able to more readily mo- uh, monetize there. So they, they were able to provide advertising and get that advertising revenue from these platforms. And with the advent of the internet, there was a shift in generation where the kind of aggregation shifted to a number of portals. Think of like Yahoo News or Netscape as the browser entry point to the news online. And some news publishers like CNN, they built early websites, but they didn't get wide adoption initially. People, you know, would go to their computer, their desktop computer, boot it up, and their entry point to the internet was their browser. And so portals were were massively useful in sort of navigating the range of information that people might want. And then that eventually shifted, of course, to search with Google rising as kind of the dominant player there where people would go and search for topics that they might want to research or, or you know, want to want to read more about. And then there's social media, especially with uh, millennials, especially younger millennials um, and Gen Z using social media as well as messaging platforms as their primary entry point. And of course, what's different about social media and a lot of these message platforms is they sort of um, have removed that barrier between what's considered news, like what's going on out in the world versus what's going on in my personal world, where in the past, if I was reading the news from, let's say, a newspaper, I might find out what's going on in my personal world by going to um, my local church and my religious community, or maybe the park where I hang out with my friends, or maybe my kid's school, these kind of third spaces. And all of that kind of is like smashed together on social media platforms where you have stuff about your cousin and your friends, as well as something from the New York Times. Um, and that's also really shifted, of course, the business model. And so that's kind of what's going, gone on the demand side where um, people are definitely flocking to the platforms that are their entry point to the world. And it's very much mixed um, between personal and, and the news. And so there isn't this dedicated habit anymore of going to like the New York Times app as much um, in the younger generations as with other generations, um, which is sort of the equivalent of going to you know, the newspaper or the news channel. You know, one of the things that I always found interesting when we were inside of Facebook is there's oftentimes a difference between what users said they want and what users actually did on the platform. And I think, you know, you go and ask a lot of people and they want to say that, yes, we love, we're consumers of the news. We want to get that news. But there's others who are just going to be like, I just want the entertainment. I just want to go and zone out and I want to escape the world. And, you know, these companies have been facing years worth of criticism of not being able to get it right either way. And so, like, I do understand why they're doing this, but then you have situations like what happened, what's been happening in Israel happen. And all of a sudden everyone's like, I want a spot to go. I want a spot to go to get this, to have that community. And so that's a real tough balance for companies to try to face. Yeah, that's a good point. Like demand is not always consistent and might change over time or change at particular moments. Like in these crisis moments, like with what's happening in, in Israel, the Israel Gaza conflict, it's natural for some things when something monumental like this happens, people want to talk about it or they want to learn more about it. And especially because the space between like my personal conversation with friends is collapsed with like, where do I get that information? It's not at all surprising. Of course, you and I have seen this time and time again, people flock to social media to find out what's going on. What do you all think? This is what I think. This is how I feel. 
it's kind of a natural human reaction. And I think that also really should factor into the platforms and how do they think about their obligation to help people communicate, process, and connect in these kind of moments and understand what's going on in the world. Yeah. And I think I like that about we really do need to think about these things as they will ebb and flow, they will change. It's not going to be the same all the time. And that is that is okay, but that is hard for folks who might want to have sort of a consistent state of of how things look and how they might think about them. So I'm curious, like the future of this, maybe both from like with your your news hat on and your product hat on, and I don't know if they'd be the same answers, but like, how do you see this evolving over the next year? Yeah, I think it's a hard argument, especially in the US, because we have such a particular relationship with the First Amendment. It's a really hard argument to make for platforms to say, we're going to just cut off access altogether, or we're going to block the news. Now, there might be laws in certain places like Canada that um, are trying to create uh, the incentives for platforms to share the revenue with publishers. And in those cases, some of the platforms have decided to pull out of of distributing news altogether because they don't want to participate in these revenue shares. Um, But just because I think that these platforms should provide access to people because it is what consumers want and to a certain extent need, it doesn't mean that they need to guarantee that news and content that users create around the news should get extra distribution, meaning should be boosted or should be widespread and boosted and then kind of flooding all of the feeds. Because we have also seen that users are very much um, saying that sometimes they feel overwhelmed, not just by news on social media, but just their social media in general. And so this is, I think, kind of the challenge there to be responsive in different moments to what users both say they want and also observing their behavior to understand when they're pulling back there while also kind of meeting the obligation of being the place that that uh, is the primary entry point for people to the world. And enabling them to do so, providing that access, but not guaranteeing the, the distribution and, and overwhelming them in the process. Well, Diane, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your perspective and I hope we can have you on again. Thanks so much. Hey everyone, we're going to get to our main interview now. This week, I wanted to bring together three of my former Facebook colleagues that were there when I started at the company in February of 2011, Matt Peralt, Brooke Oberwetter, and Adam Connor. This all came together because Matt and I recently participated in a roundtable at the Knight First Amendment Institute on jawboning, which is around governments using their coercive powers and their ability to regulate, investigate, etc., to try to get companies to take down certain content or to do other things things. And so Matt and I had written this piece to go along with this roundtable, and it spurred an interesting conversation between Adam, Brooke, and I. And so I decided to have them all on the podcast to kind of talk about all of our experiences, not only at Facebook, but at other companies and our experiences since leaving the platform. So with that, we will go to the interview. I am super excited to have three of my favorite people here who welcomed me into the Facebook DC office way back when in February 2011. It is these three people's fault, one of them in particular, for sucking me into all of this. So Brooke, Adam, and Matt, thank you so much for joining Impossible Trade-Offs. Thank so excited all. to be on, Thanks, Katie. 
Um, and Adam kind of um, was the genesis of this because he was like, which one of us is she going to have on first? And then I was like, I'll just have all three of you on. So I have no fights um, around this. And then Matt and I have worked on a piece around jawboning and we were having a great conversation. So I wanted to start with that. Let's first do intro so folks can know who you are, a little bit more about you, et cetera. And we'll do ladies first. Uh, Brooke, why don't you go ahead? Oh, lovely. Uh, my name is Brooke Oberwetter. I was at, uh, we used to call it Facebook back then for about eight and a half years started i think after adam but just before kdu and matt and was doing communications for them and then ended up on the policy team doing some programs work uh towards the end a little operations moved over to amazon then to tiktok and i'm now blissfully unemployed uh and able to join your podcast thank you um matt why don't you go next i'm matt peralt i'm the director of the center on technology policy at unc and I worked at Meta from 2011 to 2019, overlapping for a long period of time with all three of you. And uh, and Adam, certainly last but not least. Uh, I'm Adam Connor. I'm the currently the vice president for technology policy at the Center for American Progress, which is a think tank here in Washington, D.C. Um, but prior to that, I had a long career in tech, including at Facebook from 2007 to 2014, where I had the uh, true honor of meeting everyone here and bringing Katie into Facebook in particular. So that was not an impossible trade off. That was a, a very positive addition uh, to the team and looking forward to the conversation. Cool. So we wanted to bring everyone together today because Matt and I recently wrote a piece for the Knight First Amendment Institute around jawboning. And so wanted to kind of a conversation because since all of us were in public policy, all of us had to deal with the government officials in one way, shape or form all around the world, kind of to dig into this topic a little bit more and give a bit more of a platform perspective. And so Matt, I thought we'd start with you. If you could maybe define jawboning, share a little bit more about the piece that we wrote um, and we'll go from there. Yeah, so jawboning as the Knight Institute, which is which is hosting this upcoming convening on the topic, the way that they define it is informal government efforts to persuade, cajole, or strong arm private platforms to change their content moderation policies. Um, Katie, one of the interesting things I think about writing this piece and writing it for this symposium was how much we went back and forth with various different people about the definition. Because I think for me and you, we sort of thought of it as something that went beyond how Knight defines it. And I actually think even Knight defines it in some ways more broadly than a judge might define it in a court on the constitutionality of job owning. And for me and you, we were thinking about it in terms of this entire ecosystem that puts pressure on tech companies and tech company employees to uh, consider how they might approach certain decisions. I think the current debate is most focused on content moderation decisions in light of the First Amendment. But as I think all of us experience, there are a broader set of decisions that end up getting intense pressure from policymakers and then also from civil society and press and others as well. And can you dig into a little bit of some of the examples you used in the piece or elsewhere of like, how did that show up to you in day-to-day -day life at Facebook? So you should dig into examples because your example in the piece is really compelling. It was hard for me actually to develop a particular, to remember a particular moment where I was sitting in an office and someone said, if you don't take down this particular piece of content, then we'll regulate you in this way. Um, I didn't, I couldn't remember a specific moment of that, but I also feel like that might be because it was just what our jobs were. Like it felt to me like it was, it was every single day that it was, um, you know, it, it, it happened privately. It happened publicly. Like, so we cite a Nancy Pelosi example in the piece of her being frustrated with a content moderation decision related to, um, content that made it look like she was drunk, uh, uh, synthesized, manipulated content that made it look, look like she was drunk. 
which Facebook did mm-hmm. remove. And then like six months later, she's talking about filing antitrust cases against Facebook and removing quote unquote tax exemptions. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that I think we experienced kind of at, at all moments was like this pressure that came in various different forms around certain kinds of decisions, many of them related to speech. And then this kind of implicit threat that if you didn't take action in one particular area, there'd be retribution in another. And I should say, like, also, um, this didn't, this wasn't just like the federal government and it wasn't like a democratic problem or a Republican problem. This was like all levels of government, including international. Uh, I think there was a lot of international pressure around, like, if you don't do XYZ, remove content, provide user data. Um, we will arrest your employees or we will make it difficult for you to do business here. Um, and it also totally bipartisan. So it happened in the Trump administration. It seems to be happening in the Biden administration. It happened in the Obama administration. It was sort of a ubiquitous um, thing and, you know, that sort of defined, I think, in many ways, our experience. Yeah. And the example that I have, it's less of an example of if you don't do this thing, we're going to legislate against you. It was more of a experience I had um, in a senator's office where they were like, we know we're not going to be able to pass legislation on whether or not uh, campaigns can use custom audiences for advertising. And this is where you could upload a list of email addresses and then you could advertise to those people if there was a match on Facebook. It was all double blind hash. So the, the email addresses weren't shared and all that. And they were basically like, we don't like it, but we know we can't pass legislation on it. And so we're just going to pressure you to do it in hopes that other platforms will will do that. And that's a kind mm-hmm. of a point we make in our piece, too, about like, we don't like that they're doing this when they can't actually take legislative action on some of this. Yeah, stuff. That, that was the thing that was initially so striking to me when I when, when I was experiencing it. The, the, one, a line that you and I had mm-hmm. at one point that I think we, we removed was about like knowing what this was before we knew the term. So I think I, I forget when I sort of first understood what job owning was as a legal concept, but within the last like year or two, I mean, it's relatively recent, at least in my consciousness. But for a long period of time, I had this concern about wh- why is it that we're getting so much pressure, like in hearings on content moderation decisions in an area where the, for, the government is severely restricted legally from taking the action that it's pushing the companies to take. Like it can't pass a law telling a company to remove certain content or to, or to leave up certain content. The First Amendment, in most cases, is going to prohibit that. And also, there's often like political barriers to passing the law. Like they're not able to muster a majority to get legislation through the demo- democratic process. And the hope through is that through job owning, they would get companies to make the decisions that they're talking about, that they're trying to push them to make, but they're not able to achieve them for legal reasons and political reasons. And it always seemed that created discomfort in me. Like it felt like that it shouldn't be the case that they can achieve the outcomes that they're desiring when these two other things should be barriers. So Adam, how did this show up for you in your job? Uh, you know, it's an interesting question. I, I think now I can talk about it from like a couple of different perspectives, you know, kind of being in civil society now and kind of thinking about this aspect, you know, I would differentiate it in a, in a couple of ways and the way I experienced it. You know, I think that it is easy to conflate uh, a policymaker or a politician um, and their requests on something um, with the fact that they are human beings too, and often kind of uh, under a lot of public scrutiny and fire. And so, you know, in my mind, when a politician maybe flags something or an elected official flags something about themselves that was maybe unflattering or mean, you know, I tried to, I think it is very reasonable to note that like that in and of itself is like a kind of job owning, job owning, but it is like a, maybe an understandable one, right? Like 
yes, maybe the Pelosi example of the the slowed down, you know, kind of uh, video, which took place at the conference my current employer was running at the time. Like, yes, I think that's a question we can look at in the broad lens of policy and, and bills, but also like she was pretty upset that like this video had been manipulated and wasn't coming down, particularly when other social networks put it down. So like for me, I think there's an aspect of job owning that, that in my experience over the years, particularly at the beginning of Facebook, started at a level of when it was personal. Like I, you just have to discount a little bit that on some level, this is somebody just complaining about something in their life. And like we have public figures who are subjected to some pretty unkind things and it, it may be protected speech or it may be speech in particular that platforms choose to protect. It doesn't mean it's like fun or nice or like doesn't mean somebody gives up the right to complain about it just because they're in power. And so I, I think to me, I disintermediate this a little bit, right? Like if it is about the kind of content that maybe you find personally upsetting, like I can understand some aspect of that is also maybe blowing off steam. And I think it's a little, you know, I think it is also important to note like the disparity in power here, right? Like I think it is worth noting as we go this conversation, like one of the reasons this happens is like these institutions, at least in the United States, and I think a lot of this job owning context is most prominent in the United States is because there is a real asymmetry of power that politicians and governments feel, even though we know those are institutions that also have power because that's kind of the only tool they have to influence them. So there's like a pro and a con in that. But I would say that when we see job owning in the, in the broader context to achieve other political means, you know, that is, I think, reasonable. I just kind of tend to like give a little bit of understanding to like, look, like there are some Facebook groups that say unkind things about people's politicians, families or other things that like pushing for that removal is I put just maybe in a different category than some of the other things that have been listed, you know, either in your piece or in examples that we've seen floated. And so I would just keep in mind some of that, that human aspect. Um, I've got other thoughts as well, but I think in my experience, particularly at the beginning, it was a lot of like very personal stuff that made its way to us. And I know that isn't necessarily uh, how it manifests itself today now that these networks have reached particular size and sophistication. I want to dig in really quickly. You said something, you think this happens more in the US than it does from international governments? I think that international governments have other tools they are more likely to use to increase pressure as well. I think in the United States, like with the exception of maybe the last administrations, and I think we we should hold space for this, right? Like we talk about job owning in the terms of like inappropriate emails or pressure, but like that's broken others know, right? Like you can have a government in the United States that chose to issue executive orders that were at best wildly illegal, right? Uh, uh, to reinterpret entire sections of, of law or to ban companies. And so there's, but that is kind of, it's so outside the norm. It's like not even mentioned in most of the job owning pieces that I read, right? Like, because it's like, oh, that was like an aberration because it was the Trump administration. Whereas I think in Turkey or in India or other countries, they're willing to use more than just email complaints, right? They're willing to threaten to block. They're willing to arrest executives. And so when I think we have this very US-centric view on it in some aspects that is really around like, these are email complaints, they like, they're like or public complaints, like some aspect of it is, is a little more US-focused because like, Katie in the US, like, you know, it wasn't necessarily that you were threatened with arrest because you wouldn't remove something. I don't think that's true necessarily. Global so that's the kind of piece I mean. mean gotcha. Brooke, how, how did this manifest for you? 
So a, a couple of different ways. I, during my tenure at Facebook, wore a bunch of different hats. So certainly sat in on some of those meetings that, that you all are talking about with elected officials, government officials talking about, you know, particular pieces of content or even particular ways that the moderation system works um, just in general. Like, is it flagging particular keywords? Is it doing this, that or the other that might prevent a, a particular viewpoint from getting out? So I certainly experienced some of that as well. Um, but to Matt's point earlier about sort of thinking of job owning as being maybe something broader than the the Knight Center's definition of just being about sort of First Amendment protected speech is what is the chilling effect of this sort of extra legislative authority that simply by virtue of being an elected official, some people are, are able to exert. And the example that I encountered the most was um, getting a letter from Congress asking about a particular feature or a particular incident to um, kind of strong arm the company into making a change to how something works or um, preventing a particular kind of content. One of the funniest ones that pops into my head is, um, you know, Facebook Marketplace is a place where uh, people exchange, you know, can go to exchange goods or buy and sell things. It's not it's not like official commercial activity on the part of the people who take part in it. Uh, and when Fisher Price ordered a recall for a product called the Rock and Play, um, we received letters uh, about what we were doing to stop rock and plays from being sold in Facebook marketplace. Um, and the fact is that's, that's just people using the platform to buy and sell goods in a private way. Um, but I think once it goes on that congressional letterhead, it has sort of a, an implied threat behind it that if you don't take the sort of action that we're suggesting, um, there's going to be something that follows. Is, is it going to be an investigation? Is it going to be a hearing? Um, and the, the, for, from my perspective, the manpower that goes into sort of addressing those letters, which you know includes the work of legal and communications and the policy team and the product teams, um, that's time that could be spent actually solving the problem uh, rather than sort of responding to these uh, Complaints, I should say that, you know, maybe some members are fundraising off or maybe they're just trying to get a headline about it. So I think it's under that more expansive definition that, that Matt talked about earlier. I think the, the problem is is pervasive. Yeah. And I think that, um, Adam, to what you were saying, there's a lot of different forms that this can take. And I think that was one of the challenges, Matt, with you and I writing the piece. And then we got feedback from and it's like they're law professors and they're looking at this super narrowly. And we're like, no, you got to kind of take the whole of it all that is happening because you have, you have, you do have congressional letters, you have hearings, you have them going and talking to the press um, to complain about, to complain about things. You have them, you have the executive orders, you have all sorts of different ways that you need to take them as a whole when thinking about this versus individually. And I'm kind of curious, like, do you all agree with that? Like, how are there other things that, I, that I'm missing that they might be able to do? Well, so I, I, I think it is important to keep the narrow definition in mind, because I think there's an issue here of what conduct courts will prohibit. Right. So in the Missouri versus Biden case, the recent um, Fifth Circuit case, there is a, a court declaration about particular kinds of interactions that the court deems to be unconstitutional and prohibited. That, I think, you're, you're only going to get that with a sort of narrow legalistic definition. And that is, I think, really, it's really important to understand what conduct a court could actually forbid. Then there's kind of a second question. I think this gets to some of what Adam was saying, which is, um, like, what, what of this other kind of, 
of pressure is desirable and some of it's desirable. Some, and some of it I think is like unfair to call it pressure is more like education or kind of, you know, communication, like providing the information from the government about the government's unique experience of what it sees about how tech products are used and the benefits that that create, that that use creates, but also the harms. And I think there's a lot of that that's desirable. And then it crosses a line at some point into undesirable conduct. And some of that conduct is covered by constitutional prohibition and some of it isn't. And, And so I think part of what Katie, you and I were trying to get at in the piece is like, think also about not just what would be constantly constitutionally prohibited, but what you would encourage government um, officials to re- what kind of conduct you would encourage them to refrain from. So Matt, you had a question for Brooke and Adam, and rather than me asking it, I think you should ask it. Yeah. So I, so so they went on in their post Facebook um, employment to work at other tech companies, um, and so I'm kind of I'm curious, you know, how they experienced um, jawboning at companies like you know Amazon and Slack and TikTok. I think most companies where you have user generated content, I think there's in general a lot of alignment on certain things that that we wouldn't call job owning. Like, how do we work with law enforcement to keep kids safe? How do we how do we make sure that our trust and safety operations are are doing what they're supposed to be doing to keep our users, you know, safe from harm in the real world? And so I I, I think all companies are are doing that kind of work. What I what I noticed though is that, and I think this is possibly a result of Facebook having been one of the first big platforms um, is that the way the company built its structure, built the content policy team into the public policy team. And I think that was a really, um, I I don't even want to say choice. I think it was just an evolution of sort of how those teams worked. Uh, And I think that today you wouldn't see a setup like that in a new platform or a new company. Um, because I think that that necessarily politicizes those content decisions where you have the person who is, you know, potentially the head of public policy also making the decisions about what kinds of political speech are allowed or what kind of, you know, whether it's making fun of a particular member of Congress or a president or a head of state, does that come up or stay down? Well, there's a level of political pressure that is is born on that conversation when the content policy team is a part of the public policy or the political affairs team. And so I would say at TikTok, those things are are kept fairly separate. Um, and, and I think that that was a, a model that I think was less susceptible to maybe the kind of meetings that, um, you know, we all experienced when we were at Facebook. Adam, how about you? Was it different for you in other places? Yeah, I mean, I think I could speak to it in, in two ways. I think uh, as I went to other company, you know, as I went to an enterprise company, as I went to Slack, you know, the, the kind of questions there um, were a little bit different, uh, you know, related to it. Although I think anytime, I, I still think, and you see this a lot, particularly for companies like Discord and a little less Slack these days, right? Like these private spaces that are, that are free and nominally open to the public create, uh, have always been a place where we know, uh, you know, issues are going to come in the future. And it's kind of remarkable. They haven't been as highlighted, you know, yet, right? Like the, the role that, that, that coordinating things like discord play in, in a lot of kind of real world events is like not to be underestimated. And so I think, you know, we see some of that, but it wasn't quite as pervasive, you know, then I think a, a lot of what I think to go back to it, right? Like when you're early in a tech cycle, it is all before it gets much more developed, right? Like some of it is just about figuring out lines, right? Like some of it is like, we get requests from government to change their term, our terms of service so they can use our service, right? And like, that's kind of a, a form of pressure, but it's also like a kind of form of technological adoption, right? And so I kind of got it less, it's, you really get the job owning at its most severe once you have 
like enough power and 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 kind of space to have influence and you have decisions and rules that can be both held to and kind of modified and so i think that really is for a lot of this some aspects of it coming later in the cycle i think you know you see this with generative ai companies right now which is like they're kind of piecemealing some of these things together right like like I say this a lot, right? Like open AI has a pretty good acceptable use policy and no place to report a violation of said acceptable use policy, right? Like it's it's like there are pieces here, right? Uh, you know, within this or open AI may claim or any, you know, generative AI company may say, look, like we're new, right? Like, like, you know, we give us time to develop these tools, but like they're going to get to a billion users in a year, you know, when Microsoft deploys uh, these technologies that took us eight years at, at Facebook. And so like the, you see some of these things being speed run. I, I will say to go back to Matt's point, cause I think it's important now that I'm in civil society, like I've helped the press yell at, at tech companies. I've helped Congress send letters. And, and, you know, I, I think one thing that, there are two things here. I think one, Matt said this right. Like it's a little bit of education. Like these rules, content policy rules are not particularly easy to understand. And their application, you know, is not infallible and certainly at its most polite, like not always understandable, right? And so I think some aspects of that need to, to kind of be held in mind. And I think to the extent that some of the EU's DSA obligations on transparency or other things might like at least help people start to get a flavor, not only of of the rules, but the challenge in, in implementing them, like that might be, I think, a net positive. But, you know, I think part of this too is like, these are private platforms that have like tremendous power. And so like, I think another way to think about job owning in a kind of positive way, right, is like, like in this country, like you're in a position in the United States, especially to like say no, right? And like to, to, to push back, which isn't necessarily true in, in other countries. But like, it's also, I think, I can say this now from the outside, right? Like a feeling of a little bit of helplessness that you see members of Congress have, that you see people in the White House have and others. And like, that may not sound fair, but I think it is also an articulation of like where we have ended up in a, in a space that is, I think, not necessarily uh, as easy to understand or, you know, kind of has some asymmetries. So I want to go back to what Brooke was saying about congressional letters. And this is like to go with the name of the, the podcast, Trade-Offs. Um, Adam, you were mentioning that you've helped Congress write letters. Do you see, is there a positive aspect of the letters like that, that you see? Like what perspective do you have? Because you've now been on like both sides. You've been the recipient of congressional letters and one who's helped to send letters and put that pressure. My own personal philosophy is like, I only like think the letter is an appropriate tool if it can help bring to light information uh, that either isn't like substantially in the public, right? And so, you know, that is often a case with a new product or something else that like, you know, I think is a reasonable question um, or really highlight, you know, something that is, is you know, kind of being woefully ignored. So I think it's a tool for that. We understand it. It has trade-offs. Um, and I think we're happy to talk to that. I would say not everybody, and that goes for both the advocacy community and certainly members of Congress, has that same attitude. So I think, you know, as with all things, you know, I think the kind of proliferation in numbers is, a, is certainly a real challenge. And, and, you know, I think my general sense is right, and, and I haven't been inside in a while, right? Like, there are some things you get, you get a hard question that's hard to answer because you really don't want to say it, right? And then there's sometimes you get it where it's just like, this is a bad question, or this is kind of like something that's not... And, and, but they're not all good, but that's also like the trade-off of, of, you know, having governments and elected officials. And if I could jump in on that, because maybe this is like my long dormant libertarian streak here, but I, I think that like the appropriate way to apply that pressure is through advocacy groups. It is through 
um, you know, people coming together to, to demand of these tech companies answers to questions or better understanding. I think my concern is certainly when you put the, the, the force of government behind that, it's certainly a different question. It, it, it has the impact of being this like extra legislative authority to, to come to a policy outcome that the legislature can't get to. And so, uh, you know, there were many times at, at many companies that I've worked at where, um, where the question has been like, can we make this change? Can we do this thing? And the government affairs team comes back and says, we'll get a letter. We'll get a letter. You know, if, if we're going to make this change, if we're going to do this thing, we have to be aware that there will be some element of, of threat or concern about a congressional hearing or whatever it is or an investigation. So it's not an insignificant thing to receive one of those letters and, and feel compelled to respond to it. I will say there was, I think it was Disney some over a decade ago received a letter um, and their response was sort of what I wish anybody could respond with, which is just sort of like, yeah, we'll take care of that. Thank you. It was like a two sentence response as opposed to the <laughs> like 50 page detailed analysis that, that we would typically think of doing to respond to a congressional inquiry. So I, I do think there's some, some value to, to being like, yeah, we're going to take care of it. We're, we're on top of it. We'll talk to you later. Um, it was it, it was refreshing almost to see as someone who had spent so many countless hours uh, wrangling lawyers and communications people and policy people to, to weigh in on those things. Um, so I think the distinction between an advocacy group and a, a government official sending that kind of letter is is an important one. I think the tone really matters, like for the specifics of what this of the content and then what it feels like really makes a difference. This is not in my experience, it's not principally government officials saying. We have a unique perspective because we are democratically elected and we want to share that unique perspective. And this is how we're experiencing this particular component of your terms of service. Or this is what we're hearing from constituents about this part of your terms of service and how you're going about enforcing it. It is much more aggressive and I think much more personal in most circumstances. So there's a lot I think that's problematic about the Missouri um, v. Biden decision, particularly the, the district court decision. But it surfaced a lot of content that I think is like, again, I think feels familiar to us feels familiar, familiar to me and is disturbing. So like one of the examples, Katie, I don't know if we can say this on your podcast, but this is an example from a judicial decision is um, a White House official saying to Facebook, are you guys fucking serious? I want an answer on what happened here and I want it today. And that I think is like, that's a sort of extreme. I don't think that's like the 50th percentile of what jawboning, the content of jawboning, but it's not beyond the pale. I mean, I, I, th I think we probably have all heard things of that sort. And that feels to me like a kind of pressure, a kind of coercion that is not about sharing information and like a, a assumed best intentions and the desire to sort of mutually get to a place that is better for society. I mean, I do, I do think it is worth putting that example in, in like full perspective though, because like that is actually not really, I think we could argue like that's a fairly different case because it's not necessarily job hunting, right? That email is not about a content decision. That email is about, the president's Instagram account broke like, and when the white house official who emailed Facebook asked about it, they said like, we will be providing no more information about what happened to the president's email. I'm paraphrasing. So, but that is, I think you can put in a category of like, this is a person asking what happened to the president's, you know, account on your service and being told he's not getting any more information. So I think I generally accept that framing and it's unacceptable in content policy or other decisions, but my understanding uh, from that example, which has gotten kind of the most traction on Missouri versus Biden, is like that is actually an example of somebody asking a product question about something that was about the president's tool and platform and basically being told, 
we won't be giving you any information and finding that inadequate. Yeah, but again, I, to me, it's an example that like feels like a reminder, not an example that feels like an exception. And the decision like cites a bunch of other content that I think is similar. It says like, I've been asking you guys pretty directly over a series of conversations of the biggest issues you're seeing on your platform when it comes to vaccine hesitancy and the degree to which borderline content, as you define it, is playing a role. There's just like pressure on content-related decision. You only you only did this, however, after an election that you helped increase skepticism sure. in and an sure, Matt, I just, I'm saying, was applauded in I'm large saying part if we're going to use the most explosive version of it, like which is the thing that's getting all the traction, like the full context of that matters. And I think it does... I think it is reasonable for somebody in the White House who is being told that this platform that the president relies on and asking for more information have been told, like, lost timber. Is it appropriate? Is it a form of joy bonding? Sure. I would put that at a softer level than a content moderation question, right? Yeah, but again, the content moderation pressure, I think, cited in the decision is pretty intense. I mean, and it's also going back to, like, the point that Katie and I, you know, went back and forth on together and ended up in the piece is, like, the context of a lot of that communication is really important too, which is like we were in the middle of a pandemic with a lot of concerns about misinformation. I think a lot of those concerns about misinformation look differently in hindsight than they did at the time. Like they, there are a lot of those concerns that I think have not aged particularly well. And there's intense pressure, like in really intense pressure from prominent, powerful government actors related to speech suppression on social media platforms. And whether or not you think those decisions were like the right ones, I do think it's problematic to see the kind of extent and intensity of that pressure, particularly when there's a constitutional bar from them passing a law that would actually have required platforms to take that action. Well, and I think this is a good point to go into because uh, around more that like, I don't think any of us are arguing that there shouldn't, that the government shouldn't be able to have a point of view. I don't think any of us are arguing that, um, that there shouldn't be areas where, government and government officials and tech companies should be able to to talk to one another. I think the question is, where are those, are there guardrails and other things and to kind of shift the conversation into like solutions or ways to be thinking about this. Matt, I'll start with you again, just because of the piece, like what are some of the, what are some of the things that be, might be able to help mitigate some of the concerns that come from this, but without shutting it down completely, which I don't think any of us think should happen either. Yeah, so we focused in the piece, I think, primarily on transparency recommendations. I'd love to hear, um, Adam and Brooke, what you guys think about one of the ones that we included, which was a mechanism for um, for companies to have a way to report communications that they feel are inappropriate. So there is actually the inverse that exists now. So if a government official gets well, – there's, there's a, an ex parte communication on a pending government rulemaking proceeding – that is initiated by a non-government official to a government official, the government official has the ability to file a report on that ex parte communication and to bring it into the light. And so Katie and I propose sort of an inverse of that, which would be if a government official is putting inappropriate pressure on a company to try to influence a company decision, that there be some mechanism for a company to report that and for it to be publicized. My guess is like, I think I enjoyed like thinking about the idea, um, and I mean, again, it was like among the things in this piece that was fun for Katie and I to think about and talk about. My my guess is it would be rarely utilized in practice. It's not particularly feasible. Adam, Brooke, thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I said ten, 10 years ago that I could see a future where there was a, a, a regulatory body that's not unlike the FCC that focuses explicitly on platforms. And I predicted that it would exist, you know, within five or six years. And I didn't count on Congress being quite this inept um, and actually seeming to enjoy the whack-a-mole that it's doing. But I think that there are some very um, big problems. And again, this is now counter to my dormant libertarian streak. But I think there are some very real technology challenges that are posed by large platforms that aren't addressed in legislation and there isn't an appropriate regulatory authority to to deal with them. And that's why we have things like jawboning. That's why we have things like the Facebook oversight board and why we have these sort of efforts to get to content policies extra legislatively. And and so I think that if it's, if it's something that um, needs to be solved more directly, then it's essentially, you know, something that Congress has to do is set up what is the right regulatory framework for this. Um, the the going after it one piece of content at a time strategy is is <laughs> exhausting and potentially unconstitutional and um, isn't really solving the the key problems. Uh, I think to Matt's specific question on the kind of expert data, I I think it makes reasonable sense. I think you know we have seen in general, uh, and I believe it was a couple of years ago, a lot of you led the expansion of right transparency reports used to only be law enforcement, and now they're like general official government requests. You know, certainly this feels like an expansion of that. My sense is probably it's difficult to draw the line on inappropriate requests. And so you'd have to just say, like, where do we get a request that, like, could be on that line, right? Like, if Nancy Pelosi sends an email being like, does this video violate your terms? And if so, like, why not? Like, I don't know, some people might call that jawboning, but, like, others could add, like, could pretty reasonably say, well, that seems like a reasonable question that, like, an official who's in the video could have. And so my sense would be there, you'd, you'd probably just want to, you'd, you'd have to have the widest possible bucket because c- it's like hard for me to get a sense of what it means to be inappropriate there. And, you know, so that's, that's kind of uh, where, and then I think there's a real question there of, of, you know, transparency in it, but that's, I, I think it's generally positive. My sense is just, it's difficult to draw the line between like what's truly inappropriate or not. Uh, in that context. So you'd probably want to draw a, a wider circle. Well, I think that's why we were, we ended up on so much transparency stuff around this because drawing that line is really hard. And so it's a bit more of being able to not only have this stuff out in the open, but Adam, to your point about some of the stuff Matt was reading, it's also having it in context um, of what those types of things look like and what they're asking for so that people do kind of understand what this is or isn't. And I think particularly our friends on the Republican side of, of the Hill have concocted this scheme that I frankly don't think they're, you know, there's, there's legitimate questions they're asking about how far this should go. But like, I also feel like we need to remember that post 2016, everyone was complaining that the government and platforms hadn't talked to each other enough about foreign interference. And so like, we don't want to shut this all down completely. Um, and Matt, some of the other things that I think we recommended to you, like Brooke, you were talking about, you know, Facebook having content policy underneath public policy and many other platforms having that separate. I think another recommendation we had, right, Matt, was around like potentially an executive order or something like that. Also kind of setting firewalls within government and sort of separating out who was talking to the platforms about some of these issues versus the ones that actually had the power of, of regulation, right? Yeah, exactly. And one thing, maybe I can reverse the question a little and ask you about this. One point that you um, that you included in the piece that I thought was really important was that I think the executive order would help to address this a little bit is 
um, power hierarchy in terms of who from government is talking with who at a tech company. Yeah, I was saying that, like, you know, a lot of those emails that you were reading there were going to a junior member who used to be on my team, whose job it is to liaise with the White House to help them with their digital stuff and and all of that. Um, and them getting an email like that, they don't have the power to say yes or no. They're just going to run it up the flagpole, but they're the ones that and and listen, we were paid to get to 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 be that frontline person with that on that that is different than when those conversations are happening perhaps at the VP or or C suite level um, of what that looks like just in terms of you know the influence and stuff that it might have because at least I know for I'll just speak for myself there were times right where somebody would come back from a, a meeting whether it was on the hill or the government and they're like hey they had this question we need to really figure this out like and you felt and there was just a lot more pressure if a c-suite person was being like fix this than if the junior level staffer was like hey hi you know we're getting this complaint from from the my contact at the at, at this agency or whatever of what was happening Adam it looked like you wanted to jump in Oh, yeah. I just, I might also ask folks, I, I think this has primarily been in discussions about kind of content that's visible. And so I, I wonder, and a lot of what happened at, with WhatsApp, for instance, was after I left Facebook. But in your experience, right? Like, what was it like having to deal with the questions for something you truly didn't have control, right? Like WhatsApp groups or, or messages sent there? Was that an easier conversation to have with, with governments? Cause you just, what are you going to do? Or like harder, you know, like, uh, it, it's kind of, it's it's different when you have the realm and the ability to take action versus kind of what I think, you know, we see a lot of particularly on on WhatsApp or these kind of communication apps. So just kind of wondering how that that went in your experiences. I at least found WhatsApp harder. I mean, WhatsApp is the one where the VP in Brazil actually got arrested because a judge was demanding data that we actually didn't have to hand over to them because they didn't understand how the end to end encryption worked. And this was more internationally than it was in the States because Excuse me, WhatsApp isn't as big of a, um, a, a thing here, but a lot of times where they were just like, I don't know how much they believed that it was actually encrypted or that like you should be able to have a backdoor for us or there should be other ways. It, I think some of it was a lack of understanding of what, what it actually was. And I think also a little bit of a lack of trust of what it was that the, the platform could or could not see. And so. And it was just, they're like, I can see it. I'm in these groups. You should be able to do something. And we're like, we know you can see it, but we can't see it. Um, so there was just a lot of confusion there. I don't know, Brooke and Matt, if you guys had to deal with a ton of WhatsApp stuff. I don't think it's just about WhatsApp. WhatsApp. I think it's about anything. So an unacceptable answer in a government meeting is I don't have the power to address what you want me to address. And usually that's the actual answer. I mean, it, it, WhatsApp is a like particularly interesting example because of the interplay between the two companies and sort of the separation, but also integration between the two companies. Um, but on almost any issue, you if if someone was asking you to do something, you would have the legal team to talk to, and you need to talk to the communications team, and there'd be engineering feasibility. There'd be like a million different things that would need you need to check off a list in order to get alignment around any particular decision. And typically, you, you know, if you are in a room with a staffer who's upset about a particular issue, it is very hard for you for, for for more like junior people, I think, to be responsive to whatever that particular concern is. It's not it's not it's not necessarily an excuse. I mean, obviously, you get pressure in meetings around things that, like everybody wishes that you could shift. Um, 
And in those cases, like, you know, trying to be responsive obviously is important. But um, I think the point about Katie, the point that, that you've raised about kind of like inequities in power is, um, is an appropriate one. Well, and I think the other thing, too, that we talk a lot about that I really want to make the point here, too, is that just because a government made a request of us, sent us a letter, yes, there were times that we took action, but there were probably, I would say, the vast majority of times, if it didn't violate our terms, if it didn't, like, we were the ones having to go back to them and be like, we understand how you, we understand how you feel, but like, we're not going to take action on that. Yeah. We're not going to do the thing that you want to do, which, <laughs> which then keeps compounding because they keep getting angrier and angrier that you're not doing what they want you to do. Yeah. And you know, it's sort of interesting. I mean, I think on a lot of this stuff, like um, you would hope each side would be a little bit more empathetic about the other because it works in both directions, right? Like companies ask things of government all the time that company, that government doesn't change. And on certain things that I think like clearly government should change. Like one thing that we, that um, my center has worked on, we worked on a lot of reports on, on political advertising. And one thing that I was struck to discover is that there's no federal law on voter suppression right now. So, um, so is at the federal level, it is not illegal to suppress the vote. Lots of states have those laws. Um, and I think probably like most people agree that like a federal law on voter suppression is sensible. But if you walked into any member's office and you said, Oh, just criminalize voter suppression, they would like laugh at you. I think they'd be like, that is unbelievably hard to achieve that outcome politically. And if you were like, no, it's really important. Do it right now. It's really important. Do it now. It wouldn't really make a difference. It's like a hard thing to accomplish. And, you know, I think that is, that exists on the company side too. You, you, you think of companies as like being able to act really quickly and there's not a bureaucracy at a company. Like it's very easy to just like make a thing happen overnight. And that's not, that's not true. They're complicated organizations. So um, just because I noticed we're coming up on time here and I'm sure we could talk about this stuff for hours. I love to just kind of end it with going around um, to, to all of us to sort of answer this, you know, as people continue to debate this, because I think it's going to be a large topic of conversation as we go over the next year and we have these Supreme Court cases and everything. What's one or two things that you would encourage people to keep in mind while we're having this debate? Um, and I can go first while I'm letting you all think about this. Um, and I think for me is that, again, I don't think this is black and white in that it's like, don't allow it or allow it. I think that this really is a bit more about tra transparency and being able to, to better understand what, what these, what these relationships are, where people are saying yes versus no. Um, and what that looks like and understand there's some, again, to the name of the podcast, real trade offs to be thinking about, um, when having these sorts of, of relationships. And so, uh, just not, you know, our, our, I find that our typical society today is having a, a knee jerk reaction and I would recommend not having that knee jerk reaction. So I don't know if I've bought you all enough time to have some thoughts on that match. We have you go first. Uh, sure. I don't know if I, if I had enough time to have good thoughts on this. I mean, I actually really believe that jawboning is problematic. And so I think it has been very cathartic to me. It was cathartic for me to have the opportunity to write the piece with you, Katie. I thought that was like a really wonderful experience to think more deeply about this thing that we experience that we experienced mm -hmm. together. Um, and it's been good, I think, to see the attention on this issue. I don't agree with many of the proponents of it right now. Like it has a particular political valence to it, which I don't agree with, but I think the practice is problematic. And I think the kind of ironic thing is that despite the right pushing for it now and the left kind of on defense, I think if we were to see, uh, a president Trump 2.0, for instance, I think those equities would reverse. And a lot of the people on the left who are 
on the right who are concerned about this practice would all of a sudden love it. And people on the, on the left who are defending it would all of a sudden see it as problematic. So I think that suggests that it is really good for the political process for there to be a spotlight on this and for courts to kind of figure out how to draw the line. I also think, as I think we've all said, that like education and communication is a positive thing. So I, I hope that we are able to draw attention to problematic conduct and hopefully prohibit it, but not to eliminate really positive communication between the government and companies. Adam, Brooke, anything that you all would add? Just to add to, to something Matt said, I am, I am, I shouldn't be surprised anymore when one party advocates for a particular set of powers that then they advocate against when the revert, when the roles are reversed. Like you see it just constantly, like, let's get all the executive authority we possibly can. And then another guy's in the White House and they're like, Oh, no, you can't possibly have that authority. I mean, it just, I've been in DC for 22 years and I shouldn't be surprised by that anymore. Um, but I think as this, you know, sort of as a, as a closing thought, like this conversation has showed that it's, it's not just one problem that, that needs to be addressed. Like there's a lot of different things. And I think that job owning is certainly one, one narrow slice of, of sort of the ways in which governments are interacting with these tech platforms. But just, you know, if you think back 10 or 12 years, like the impact that these companies have had on our society and on our lives over, over the last, decade plus like we it, it never could have been predicted and i think that there's a, a very um important rethinking that needs to happen at a number of companies about how they engage with governments what they're willing to agree to and not agree to how they are dealing with these responses or, or these incoming criticisms that they're getting whether it's from government or anywhere else and, and katie to your point transparency may be one of those very important ways of, of shining a light on it. Um, but I think there needs to be sort of a rethinking because as the four of us remember from, you know, early 2011 in Facebook, like it was all sort of held together with like high hopes and bubble gum and duct tape. And the idea that now that's what's undergirding much of our modern communications infrastructure is it, it, it's scary. Um, and so I think there just needs to be like a, a rethinking of a lot of these processes. And I think this conversation has, has really showed me that, you know, job owning in that interaction is, is one of them, but certainly not the only one. Cool. Adam, any last words? Yeah, I think two, two things. I think one to, to go back to like, you know, how we thought about things in the past and how they turned on the present. I, I like to say a lot as my punchline, right? If you took me at a time machine back 15 years and told me one day that there'd be a president of the United States who would post himself on his phone to Twitter hundreds of times a day, I'd be like, well, that sounds great. Couldn't be anything wrong with that, right? And turns out like maybe that wasn't the greatest thing in retrospect and it was hard to imagine. So I think there's that. I, I do think it is probably worth noting, and I think your piece did a very good job of this, right? Like it's hard to draw a black and white line on the jawboning piece, right? Like it, it, there needs to be interaction. I think what we hear is we'd like more transparency. We'd like the more formal mechanisms. We'd like tracking, but like that needs to be that interaction. And I think there, that inevitably with rules that are kind of created by platforms on their own that require interpretation and are subject to, to some pressure, like there's going to be some back and forth. But I, I would just hold it like, this is a, the job owning conversation feels like it's a very norms oriented and rules based oriented like conversation that we can have in the Biden administration or in like a normal world. But like, you know, it is not that long ago that like Twitter using its full, you know, First Amendment rights slapped a disclaimer on Donald Trump's tweet and he issued an executive order trying to like illegally get rid of Section 230, right? Like, like we talk about this in like, some people send some emails and some pressure and it is important, but like it's bounded in this like norms game here that like 
we have seen far off, right? Like, like, or using illegal powers to try and ban a company or pressuring, you know, the tools of, of, of the government through CFIUS and others. Like, so I would just note that like, it's fine to have this conversation this year. I think it maybe undersells a little bit, even though it's being highlighted by like what Matt said, the bad faith, but like there are, it is not that hard to imagine in both the recent past and the near potential future, like much more aggressive. It's not jawboning, right? That's just straight state pressure um, being applied coercively and like the most direct and, and like negative way. And I think we should just, you know, keep in mind that like job owning is bad. That is much worse. Right. And, and so like, it almost feels like in this job owning conversation, like job owning is better than that was right. Like, it's not to say that either of them is good, but like, we should also have this conversation bounded within that reality and that reality that it might get significantly worse, um, you know, kind of moving forward in that aspect, uh, you know, depending on how things go, or that is maybe a better way to think about how this pressure impacts companies outside of this country, because those governments are more willing to use those kind of tools, uh, you know, uh, that I think is probably worthy of like much more sympathy than like solely in the U.S. and some emails. Well, on that positive note, uh, Brooke, Adam and Matt, thank you so much for uh, joining me. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Impossible Tradeoffs. You can find the show notes and everything for this podcast on my Substack at anchorchange.substack.com. I want to thank all of my guests for doing this. And this episode was edited by Claude Jennings Jr. I hope you all have a great day and thank you so much. Thank you.